Well, um, a warm welcome to you this morning, and uh, it's good the fellowship is warm here because baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> we were driving home from some friends last night, and the thermometer on the car must be broken. It said minus nine at one point. So we, we took a picture of that, of course, and sent it to our kids. <laughs> Sorry, you're not here. We, you know, we wish you could be here with us. Oh, gosh. Pastor Dave has been on vacation with his family in Illinois this past week, and this coming week, uh, he'll be on study leave. Uh, staying, he says he's going to camp out in the library at his seminary in, in St. Louis. So pray that uh, that'll be a, a useful, profitable time for him. <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll tells the following story about President Thomas Jefferson. During his days as President Thomas Jefferson and a group of companions were traveling cross-country on horseback, they came to a river which had left its banks because of a recent downpour, and the swollen river had washed out the bridge. So each of the riders was forced to cross the river on horseback, swimming against the current, and it was really a dangerous situation. The, the very real possibility of death uh, threatened each rider, and it caused a traveler who was nearby to sort of step aside and watch as these men made their way across the river. And after several had plunged in and made it safely, this stranger asked President Jefferson if he would ferry him across the river. The president said, sure, hop on. Uh, a few minutes later, they made it safely to the other side. And when they got there, one of the president's companions asked this man, why did you select the president to ask this favor of? Now, you understand this is before the days of TV. Not everybody in the country knows what the president looks like. So this man said, well, I, I had no idea it was the president who helped me. All, helped me. All I know is that on some of your faces, the answer was written no. And on some of your faces, the answer was written yes. His was a yes face. What kind of face does God have in your eyes? When you, when you think about him looking at you, what sort of expression do you imagine he has on his face? Does it say yes to your needs, your requests? Yes to you as an individual? Or does God have a no face to you? As we head into this new year, I think this is one of the more important questions for us because our view of God, what he's like, and how he relates to us determines almost everything about how we live our lives. Can I say that again? Our view of God and how we imagine he relates to us determines almost everything about how we, how we live our lives. So it's important we get this right. Throughout Scripture, God invites us to seek his face. 1 Chronicles 16, 11. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. The familiar passage in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will heal their land, forgive their sin. I will forgive their sin, heal their land, and whatever it says. Uh, <laughs> hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. Uh, Psalm 27, 8. The psalmist is addressing the Lord. He, he said, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Heaven is described as the experience of seeing God face to face. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, which we had read. 
Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. And Revelation 22, description of the new earth. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So what does God's face say to you? Do you want to see him face to face? I think all too often, our, our view of God is not in accordance with reality. We, we overemphasize some aspects of who he is. We underemphasize, minimize some, some other aspects. And we wind up with kind of a, a cartoon caricature of God instead of the real God. Brendan Manning is one of my favorite writers. And he suggests that we might see God as the one who catches people by surprise in a moment of weakness. The God incapable of smiling at our awkward mistakes. The God who doesn't accept a seat at our human festivities. He, you know, he's not the kind of God who would want to be at our party. Uh, the God who says, you'll pay for that. The God incapable of understanding that children will always get dirty and be forgetful. The God who's always snooping around after sinners. Any of those resonate with, with you? J.B. Phillips, years ago, many years ago, wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. He describes some other caricatures of God that we may have. For some, he's a resident policeman, a sort of nagging inner voice that at best keeps us rather negatively on the path of virtue and at worst spoils all our fun. For others, he's a parental hangover. I mean, inevitably, our view of God is shaped by our human fathers. And sometimes that's a pretty fair approximation of who God is. And other times, it's light years away from who God really is. Uh, for, for many years, I thought of God as passive, because that's who my dad was. He loved me, but he loved me at a distance. He didn't move toward me. He didn't take initiative in my life. He didn't reach out to uh, help me in those times when I was just sort of floundering. I thought God was like that. Uh, other people see God as, as an old, kindly man, sort of like a grandfather, uh, not only old and kindly, but maybe old-fashioned, uh, computer illiterate. Do you think God understands the internet? What about blockchain technology, quantum mechanics? <laughs> I think. <laughs> I know, it's just something about that humor because I have no clue what those things. <laughs> but I'm confident he does, right? <laughs> so, some people think of God as the absolutely just judge whose judgments are never tempered with mercy. He's a God of absolute perfection who demands no less from his subjects. Others look at the vastness of the universe and they conclude God is something like a cosmic CEO. My own mother thought God was too busy running the universe to have any time for someone as insignificant as she was. And many in our cinema-saturated society take their cues for God from what they see in the movies. And that's kind of a scary thought. Uh, you, you, you might do a study sometime of how God is portrayed by Hollywood. And here's a hint. He's nothing like George Burns, who played God in the movie, Oh God. And he's only slightly more like Morgan Freeman, who played him in Evan Almighty and Bruce Almighty. So there's all these possible caricatures of God, and they're all mixed up with, with a view that is, we have this in our heads. It's sort of a double vision, a double image of God. On, on one side, our view of ourselves shapes our view 
of God. We project onto God our attitudes and feelings toward ourselves and toward others and assume that he feels about us and others the same way we do. Blaise Pascal said, God created man in his own image and man returned the compliment. We've created God in our image. We assume he's just like us. He, he has the same attitudes and feelings that we do. So, for example, because some people hate themselves, they're convinced God hates them. They're always on the lookout for minor infractions of the rules in their lives, so they think God must be doubly vigilant watching for their sins. If they're narrow, bitter, angry people, they assume God is a lot like that. Some people still believe that no Catholics or Orthodox or liberals will be in heaven, just fundamentalist Protestants like themselves. Others think God has a special affection for greedy, selfish capitalists like themselves, in spite of the many verses that describe God's special care for the poor. Some people are convinced God cares much more about evangelism than he does about things like social and racial justice. And others are convinced his values are exactly the opposite. See, these views of God tell us a lot more about ourselves than they do about God. But the other side of the double image is that our view of God affects our view of ourselves. If we think of God as morally lax, just loving everybody, no real moral standards, then we may conclude, hey, we're, we're good. <laughs> we're, we're good enough. We're fine. <laughs> Take that lax attitude toward our own behavior. But if we see God as very morally strict and the top law enforcement officer, then we may find ourselves loaded down with a sense of guilt and, uh, and hard, how, how to deal with that. People who believe that God expects them to be perfect can never live up to those expectations. Both sides of this coin are true. Our view of God affects our view of ourselves. Our view of ourselves affects our view of God. So what's the correct view? What is he really like? Well, before we answer that question, here's another question for you. What would you say is the most glorious thing about God? Why don't you turn to somebody near you and just tell them, you get 30 seconds. What's the most glorious thing about God in your view? Well, for, for God's answer to that question, we'll go to Exodus, Exodus 33 and 34. It's a powerful story about Moses and the face of God. And the context is this. The people of Israel had been delivered from their slavery in Egypt by the ten plagues on the Egyptians and eventually on all the firstborn. <clears throat> they were trapped at the Red Sea with the Egyptian army encroaching and God opened the waters, part of the waters, and they went through. They're out in the Sinai Desert. Really a terrible place. They're out there. But they're on their way to the promised land. But Moses has been up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God for so long, they're not convinced he's coming back. So they convince Aaron to make a golden calf, and they worship it as the God who brought them out of Egypt. <laughs> Just in time, <laughs> Moses returns from the mountain, sees what's going on. In his frustration and horror at their idolatry, he smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments. 
<clears throat> so we pick up the story at Exodus 33, verse 7, and this is kind of a little sidebar backstory that the writer gives us to explain what's coming next. He says, now Moses used to take a tent. This is sort of his, his habitual practice. He used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to that tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tents. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Verse 18, Moses said, now show me your glory. What do you think you'd see if God were to answer that prayer for you? Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, <clears throat> there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I'll remove my hand and you may see my back but my face must not be seen. 34.4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In chapter 33, 11, it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face in the tent of meeting. That, that obviously needs some interpretation because a little bit later he says, nobody can see my face and live. So what does that mean? Well, I take it to be a figurative expression, uh, a figure of speech that's intended to somehow capture the essence of the fact they, they have a very intimate relationship, a very personal relationship, which is captured in the next phrase, as a man speaks with his friend. Okay? God and Moses are having a conversation. And then in verse 18, Moses asks for what I think is a most remarkable thing. Now show me your glory. Moses already has the most intimate relationship with God of anyone since Adam <laughs> before the fall. And he wants more. But I think that's how it is with God. The more of him we have, the more we want. <laughs> show me your glory. What did you say was the most glorious thing about God? The Israelites, having just witnessed the ten plagues, man, you know, frogs and gnats and blood, and, <laughs> yeah, and then having watched God part the waters of the Red Sea, they might think his, his glory consists in his majesty, his power, his sovereignty. Uh, 
we might think of something different. We might think, well, we, we know a lot more about the creation of the universe, about, well, we know a lot more about the universe <laughs> than they did. Maybe, maybe we'd be impressed with him as the creator and think his glory consists in how big he is and how unbelievably powerful he is and how unbelievably unimaginably creative he is. We're still trying to figure out this universe that we live in. Think. Or we might think of the great white throne judgment that's coming and God is the just judge of all the earth and think that his glory is that he's so absolutely pure and righteous and holy. Or we might think about those little, little uh, triad of, of characteristics that set him apart from all other created things. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Huh? Yeah. What's the most glorious thing about God? Here's what God says. I will show you my goodness. <laughs> of all his many attributes and characteristics and great things God had done, the thing he points to as best portraying his glory is his goodness. And then he elaborates on what that goodness means. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. What does that do to your mental image of the expression on God's face? Let's look, look a little more closely at what God says here about himself in Exodus thirty three 19. I'll show you all my goodness and mercy. <clears throat> the word for mercy is just, you know, is something you don't deserve. It's, it's not giving you the bad consequences you deserve. <laughs> well, if we see ourselves as sinners, then any glimpse of his goodness is undeserved. What we deserve is condemnation, judgment, separation from God, eternal death. And instead... As we sang, he gives us life. He brings us into this new relationship with himself. Wow. God is predisposed to show us mercy in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it because that's, that's the core of his nature. He'll also show compassion toward us. This word implies an especially deep love like uh, for a, a parent to a child within this natural bonds. You know? And here with God saying, I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion, it, it emphasizes his unconditional choice of us. He chose us, chose to adopt us as his daughters and sons, completely apart from anything that might have been attractive in us because there wasn't all that much. All right. He goes on to elaborate. He says he's slow to anger. Thank God for that. <laughs> if God punished us the minute we first intentionally sinned, none of us would make it past the age of two. Because that's the age we start to sort of, you know, <laughs> put our hands on our hips and <laughs> stand up against our parents. We learn the word no. <laughs> well, thank God he's slow to anger. He gives us all these opportunities to come to our senses, to repent, to ask for his forgiveness, to be restored to him again. Praise God he doesn't have a short temper. His love for us is exceedingly patient. Do you think of times when he's been patient with you? <laughs> and he's abounding in love and faithfulness. You see this picture? How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? It's astonishing how much water. It's a really big river. It's really wide and, it, it, and it's really deep. It's not like the big Thompson River. <laughs> when people from the East Coast come out here and they say, that's the big Thompson River? It's hilarious. But this, this river, the water, astonishing amounts of it just keep coming. And I think it's a great picture of God's love and faithfulness abounding toward us day after day in every circumstance of life. It just keeps cascading into our lives. That's 
Moreover, he maintains his love to thousands. His love is not parceled out to just a few. You do know that God doesn't just love us, right? (laughs) There's a verse, something about God loved the people in faith church. He gave us only son. Thank you. (laughs) Sorry, but I digress. God loves all people, thousands, as it says here. And what we call common grace proves that. I mean, he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. He gives people strength and health and intelligence regardless of their attitude toward him. Food, clothing, and shelter are his good gifts of love to, to all sorts of people, regardless of whether they hate him or love him. And he maintains, he perseveres in that love all their lives, whether they ever respond to him or not. God's love moves him to forgive all manner of sin. God, you know, does call a spade a spade. We have what we call euphemisms, which means a good word, a nice saying. Uh, We pretty it up. We steal something, we call it borrowing. We lie, we call it misspoke. God just says, no, you you sinned. You lied. But, but... In spite of how wicked we are, in spite of how rebellious we are against his authority, in spite of our sin of every stripe, God in love forgives us. It's almost too good to be true. But it is true. And the more accurately we see our wickedness, the more glorious his forgiving love will be. Now the New Testament will later explain how God punished our sin on his son so he could remain just and still forgive us. But right here at the beginning of Israel's life is this proclamation of the gospel of grace. So no matter how far we've wandered, no matter how cold our hearts are toward him, no matter how grievously we have offended his his holiness, he always welcomes us home with a smile and a hug. But God's love is not sentimentality. It is not pure emotion. It will not be pushed around or compromised for the very good reason that if he did that, it wouldn't be good for us, whom he loves. His justice demands that he punish sin, and his love found a way to punish our sin in Christ. Of course, if we're not in Christ, then we'll be punished for our own sin. God is the just judge. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. But it's never too late to repent, to receive his forgiveness. The death of Christ has made forgiveness available to anyone. As Pastor Dave reminds us each week, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The most glorious thing about God is that his love is in the foreground. He is predisposed to have mercy on us. When he goes to show Moses his glory, it's his love that comes first. Hmm? Psalm 27, 8 The psalmist says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Well, if you're convinced that God is who he says he is here in Exodus 33 and 34, then you will want to seek his face. But if you're not convinced of that, you might be afraid to see his face. Or you might be indifferent. Why would I care to see his face? See, that's why I think it matters how we understand his face, his character, his nature, what expression he has on his face when he looks at us. Because if we get that wrong, we won't want to seek him. 
Well, if we do want to seek him, how do we do it? I mean, look, we, we can't see his face really and live. So what does it mean to seek his face and, and how do we go about that? Well, I think more than anything else, it's an attitude of the heart. It's a deep conviction that the nearness of God is our highest good. Hmm? The nearness of God is my good, the psalmist said. Accompanied with then a longing, a hunger and thirst, a craving deep in our souls to be closer to him. I really do think everything in our lives flows from our relationship with God. And the closer we are to him, the better our life will be in every aspect. Doesn't mean easier, doesn't mean more comfortable, but better. Hmm? So it matters what expression we think he has on his face when, when he looks at us. So we can decide whether we want to be close to him or not. Well, how do we get close to him? Well, I'm, I'm convinced you already know, but I have a few minutes left, so I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> there are five things called the means of grace. Five God-ordained ways to draw near to him. Number one, read and meditate on God's word. And here's a, here's a new thought, maybe. And maybe, maybe you do this already, but I've just recently started doing this, and it, it's made a big difference. When you read God's word, pause and ask him what he wants to say to you about what you've just read. Pray with the boy Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I want you to speak from your word, but I want you to speak to me by your spirit about what I just read, what I just heard you say in your word. It's really remarkable how the Holy Spirit can take something that you maybe have glossed over or you didn't see the implications of that for you and he just drives it into your heart. And you, oh, look at that. It's so much more significant than I realized because you took the time to pause and ask. So I recommend that. It is still true, friends, that God speaks with his people face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then, of course, we're going to pray. Number two, pray. But don't just bring your shopping list of requests to God. You know, be sure to include plenty of praise for who he is and thanksgiving for specific things that he's done. Thank you for this snow, Lord. And don't forget to pause and ask him to search your heart and show you anything in your life that's not pleasing to him so you can get that out of the way and clear the air between the two of you. But beyond the specific topics of prayer, I think it's good just to talk life over with God. Uh, you can, as I do sometimes, go on a rant about people and things that bug me. I, I prefer to do that in the car where only God can hear me. But you know, it's okay to tell God how disappointed you are in him because he didn't come through for you in some crucial situation. Didn't answer that prayer the way you thought he should. You can cry and grief and frustration, disappointment. You can laugh at funny things. I, I laughed this morning. Because <laughs> the things that I read in my quiet time this morning and the things that I heard on the, on the radio over here all fit together with stuff I heard in the first service. I, that's hilarious. You, you orchestrated all this. I just, yeah. Talk life over with Jesus. There was a time in my life, uh, I, don't, I haven't done this recently, but I should again, because it was a great experience. I, I would set an empty chair next to me, so I would have my quiet time, just imagine Jesus sitting there and then talk with him. 
corporate worship, number three, corporate worship. But here we are, okay, good, good on us. But let's don't let this become just a habit, okay? I mean, do something every Sunday before you come to prepare your heart to meet with God. Friends, this, this can be more than religious habit or ritual. This can be an encounter with the living God. This can be the tent of meeting. But it won't be if we don't prepare our hearts in advance and if we don't ask him to meet us when we're here. Otherwise, you just sit here and go through the motions and sing the song. Just don't do that. Seek the Lord while you're here. Number four, Christian fellowship. We are not meant to live the Christian life alone. We are a disciple-making family. And he's designed us so that we need each other's support, encouragement, prayers, accountability, people to rejoice with, people to cry with. And the way we get the benefit of this fellowship is to share our hearts with our friends, not just our schedules. Let me show you the difference. It's one thing to say to your friends, yeah, I'm really busy right now. It's another thing to say, I am feeling scattered and frantic and worried that I am not getting everything done. That's an altogether different story. One tells me your schedule, you're busy, so I shouldn't bug you. The other tells me you're hurting. Yeah. Or um, you say to a friend, oh, the doctor tells me he found something a little suspicious on the scan. When what you're feeling is this stab of fear in your heart. So my question is, do you have friends who share their hearts with one another like that? Do you know how your friends are feeling about their life circumstances? And number five, communion. When we come to the Lord's table, we have an opportunity to feed on Christ himself, to nourish our souls with his actual presence. We observe communion the first Sunday of every even-numbered month, so... First Sunday in February, be our next opportunity. Make a special effort to be here for that and, and come expecting to meet with God, expecting to, to enjoy the real presence of Christ as we take these symbols of his body and blood. Well, I'm convinced you do know these things because we've said them all before, but the question is, as we move into this next year, will we do them? This is not New Year's resolution time. This is how hungry are you? <laughs> How thirsty are you? How deep is the craving in your soul for God? And my hope this morning has been to show you how beautiful and desirable he is so you will want to be closer to him. I want to encourage you to see reality, not a caricature of God. See Jesus' face in your mind's eye with a, with a tear running down his cheek as he stands by your side at a loved one's grave. See him with his eyebrows pinched in sympathetic pain as you are going through some deeply troubling situation or your own physical suffering. See his expression of sympathetic understanding when you blow it yet again. <laughs> when you're having fun, just having, having fun with your friends, celebrating a special occasion, just, just doing some fun stuff. See him smile at you. He loves it when we enjoy his good gifts. When you're having a hard time and, and things just seem impossible and you feel like you, you can't go on, 
seeing there beside you, encouraging, cheering, urging you on with his eyes bright and intense. And when you look in his face, you know you must not quit. What does God's face look like to you? He has said, seek my face. What's your response to him? What do you want to say to him? Let's take a moment and just silently you respond. Here's his invitation. Seek my face. What, what do you want to say back to him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. That we sang, and, and part of us means it, open the eyes of our heart. We want to see you. Thank you. Amen. Yeah.